Amen. Well, I'm God's. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We are going to be in the Old Testament once again this week, the book of Joel, chapter 2. We're going to look together at verses 12 to 14. This is Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. And this is God's holy word for us today. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. This is God's holy word for us today. Pray with me. Teach us your word now, O God. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Write your truth upon our hearts, we pray. Empower now the preaching of your word that we might receive it with faith and with eagerness to obey. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're through the midway point of our series for Lent as we've been going through the topic of repentance. In the last three weeks, we've looked at three benefits of repentance, and now we turn to the second half of the series where we're going to look at three requirements or conditions for repentance. It's important for us to remember that repentance is an essential part of the gospel. The benefits we receive from God are saving benefits. Benefits provided by God's pure grace and purchased by God's perfect Son. These are blood-bought benefits, and they are ours for the taking when we repent of our sins. When you repent, Christian... You exchange your sin for the benefits of redemption purchased by Christ. How do you make this exchange? What is required in order to have an authentic, acceptable repentance? Well, in Scripture, there are at least three things Three conditions required by God for genuine repentance. And in our passage this morning, we discover the first requirement. And it's this. Repentance is from the heart. Repentance is from the heart. Genuine repentance, real repentance, the kind of repentance that obtains the benefits of redemption must be from the heart. 
Now, this requirement is not the only thing in our passage. God not only states this requirement in the text, the manner of repentance, he also provides the motive of repentance. And that's where I want to begin this morning. And I want to begin here for the same reason I began the whole series with the benefits of repentance before getting to the requirements. You see, in the Christian life, God's requirements are always based on His promises. Or as theologians like to put it, the imperatives are grounded in the indicatives. Now, what's an imperative? It's where you give a command. Hey, bring me that. Do that. Stop doing that. You tell a person to do something in an imperative. What's an indicative? It's a statement of fact. It is Sunday. I am Wesley. You are looking at me. Those are indicatives. They just make a claim about something that's true. It's a statement of fact versus a command. And in theology, we got to get the order right. God's indicatives, his statements of gospel fact come first, and in response come the imperatives. This is the order in the Ten Commandments. God says, I am the Lord your God who redeemed you from Egypt, who brought you up out of the house of slavery. Therefore, have no other gods. Before he gives one commandment, he says, I'm your Redeemer. I'm your Savior. I'm the Lord. I brought you out of slavery. So then, here's the Ten Commandments. It starts with redemption. It begins with these gospel facts where God says, this is true. Here's gospel reality. And out of that reality, here are my requirements. That's why we started the series with the indicatives, the benefits of repentance before moving on to the imperatives. Here's how you need to go about repenting. And in our passage, God motivates our response of repentance and obedience by calling us to faith in His saving love. He motivates our response of repentance and obedience by calling us to believe in His forgiving mercy and in His gospel promises of benefit and blessing. This is precisely what we find in our passage as we see God, through the prophet Joel, calling the people of Israel to repentance. Let's see how God lays out the gospel motive of repentance to his wayward people before we come to point two, the manner of repentance. Now, in Joel's context, the people of Israel have turned away from following the Lord and from walking in obedience. And in judgment upon their sin, God has sent a plague of locusts upon the land with devastating effects. They lay waste to the fields and the crops. They destroy the produce and the harvest in the land. And Joel is sent to preach to the Israelites that they have sinned. That the army of locusts is the judgment of God. 
and that if they refuse to repent, God's going to send a much worse army, a foreign nation that will bring far greater disaster upon them and their land. The locust plague is a parable, a precursor, a warning that says, keep walking in disobedience, keep refusing to repent, and it won't be bugs, it will be soldiers, and they'll do worse than those bugs ever dreamed of. But here's here's the point. These threats of punishment are not the true motive of repentance. Those aren't the motives to repentance in our passage. Now, they are warnings, and they're serious, and they're real. They are warnings about the consequences of our sin. And those consequences should rightly cause each of us to fear the Lord, to walk in the fear of the Lord, to not put Him to the test. But the motive to repent is not so much escaping punishment as it is reconciliation and fellowship with God. And oh my goodness, is that a world of difference. Fleeing from punishment versus having fellowship with a treasure. Let's see this in our text. Look at verse 13, second half of verse 13, where he says, Return to the Lord. That's repentance. There's a lot of language in the, in the Bible for what repentance is. You can just have the word that's translated repentance. But you also have these words of turning or returning. These are all figures. The image in the Hebrew mind for repentance is you're going down one road and then you turn around and you go a different direction. So here it says return. You were walking away from me. Turn around. Do a U-turn. Come back. Recalculating. <laughs> return to root. Come back to me. You missed it. Return to the Lord your God. That's repentance. And then he says, for. And if if you're like me, you didn't care much about grammar in high school. But there's a couple of points of grammar that are so important. Indicative and imperative, which is called the mood of a verb. We need to get indicatives and imperatives. And then we've got to get conjunctions, like this word for. Because the word for means because. Return to the Lord because. And here comes the reason. And if you can can figure out these simple little logical connecting words in the Bible, the, the, the train of thought of the author will come alive in your mind and you'll get it. You'll just get it. Your Bible reading will click. Return to the Lord for because. Here's the reason. Here's the motive of repentance. For... He is. That's an indicative. He is. He is what? He is gracious. Come back to me. He's gracious. Come back to me. I'm merciful. Come back to me. I'm slow to anger. Come back to me. I am abounding, overflowing, brimming, gushing with steadfast love. And under that two, those two words in English is one big mountainous Hebrew word that means covenant keeping loyalty that he will never violate. 
That's why it's steadfast. It's immovable. It's, a, it's an Everest. It's a Mount Everest-sized word. You can't move Everest, and your sin can't move his steadfast love. Come back to me. I am abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Repent because, repent, that's the imperative. Because, indicative, gospel indicative. Look at who God is. Come back to me because of who he is. This came home to me in my personal experience in a way I can't get over and can't forget. Because in my story of how I became a Christian, I didn't have one conversion experience. I had three. Three. And the first one didn't take. Strike one. The second one didn't take. Strike two. I'm 0 and 2. One more strike and I'm done. There's no guarantee I'm going to have a, a million chances to come to Jesus. All right? I struck out on the first two. And the third one led to me being your pastor because it led to me being a Christian. It made me a Christian. Story of three conversions. And the first two times, why didn't it take? Because I came to Jesus purely out of fear. I heard the warnings and I heard the punishments and all I could think was, I don't want to mess with hell. And I'll tell you this, before I believed, before I really believed in God, I mean really believed in God, I believed in hell. That's the first thing I really, really believed in, in seventh grade. Hell sounds horrible. Hell sounds real, and it sounds real bad. And guess what, guys? It doesn't take having a new heart to not want to go there. It just takes a little bit of sense. You don't have to be born again to think, man, hell, hell sounds awful, and I don't want to go there. And the first two times I went for it is because I was just scared, and I was just running away from punishment. But I wasn't running to the Savior. I was just trying to, trying to, trying to use my get-out-of-jail-free card. But the third time that I had a conversion experience, on May 24th, 2000, High Point, North Carolina, day before the last day of seventh grade, a youth group meeting, youth rally. I don't know what the preacher talked about, and it doesn't matter. I just remember when he, when I got there, I cared about the girls I was there to see. I cared about pizza afterwards. I cared about the basketball game and the fellowship with my friends and cutting up, and I wasn't even paying attention when the, when the meeting started. But by the time it was over, I was a new creature. And old Wesley that came to that youth meeting didn't go home. New Wesley went home. Old Wesley stopped existing. And a new Wesley was born. One that actually believed in Jesus, loved Jesus, wanted Jesus, ran to God, saw glory in the gospel. Hell wasn't even on my mind that night. Jesus was. And man, that's different, isn't it? I wasn't trying to just get away from the fire. I was trying to get to Jesus. And that makes all the difference. That was a real conversion. So don't come, don't repent just because hell sounds bad or fire is hot and eternity is long. Come to Jesus because of who he is. 
He is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. And he proved it because he's got the nail prints to back it up. He relents over disaster. The warnings are real and they should sober us, but the promises should sweeten us. So that in our Christian lives, we learn to walk in the balance of both the fear, yes, and the love of God. We should fear and love God. We do not trifle with sin because we know the consequences of sin and we are fearful of getting messed up in those consequences. But that's not the real motive. That sobers us, that keeps us vigilant, but the real thing that moves us is loving God, fellowship with Him because of who He is. When you see Him, when you're given eyes to see, it makes all the difference. Now look at verse 2, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 14. He says, who knows? We're still talking about the motive of repentance now. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. He says he turns and relents. He turns and he relents. In other words, when you repent, God repents. But not in the same way. God doesn't have any sin to repent of. Because remember, repent just means to turn, turn away from. When you turn away from your sin, he turns away from the judgment that should fall on your sin. And instead of judgment, you get blood-bought grace. And in God's mercy, he calls you to turn. Because his favorite thing, I keep saying this in this series, guys, God's favorite thing to do with your sin is not judge and condemn and squash you for it. His favorite thing to do is to forgive it and blot it out and take it away. He wants the glory of being your perfect Savior, not your perfect condemner. And so in his love, he calls you. Turn from your sin, and I'll turn from the consequences of your sin, those eternal consequences. And it says, who knows if he'll leave a blessing behind him? Who knows if he'll leave a blessing behind him? And he says, when he says leave a blessing, he mentions a grain and a drink offering. Now, the reason Joel says that in the context is because, remember, those locusts have destroyed all the grain and the grapes that you make the wine from. So there's no grain offering, there's no drink offering, because there's no grain and there's no grapes. <laughs> and you offer a grain offering and a drink offering as an act of worship. But they can't do what they're supposed to do in the temple because they don't have anything left to do it with. And the animals are starving, so they're running out of sacrifices. It's bad. And so he says, if you turn and relent, God might leave a blessing behind him. He might bring back the harvest. He might bring back the grapes and bring back the grain so we can get back to worshiping him. In other words, he might just do away with all those old consequences of sin. He might just leave behind him those gospel benefits that we've been talking about, healing you from the ravages of sin, cleansing you from the guilt of sin, canceling the consequences 
of your sin, those eternal consequences that bring his condemnation. Christian, the good news today is that the, this God, the God of this gospel, can make all things new. And that means you. He can make you new. He can change your life and your situation and your circumstances. When you repent and you give him that old sin, and in exchange, he relents from judgment, and all you get is gospel grace. That's the motive of repentance, who he is and those wonderful gospel blessings that he promises us. And when you set your eyes on him and set your eyes on the promises of the gospel, you really get changed all the way down. We love him because he first loved us. Now, with this as the great motive of repentance, we must come now to consider the manner of repentance. Point two. Having motivated our repentance, what manner or kind of repentance does God require from us if we want to obtain the benefits? Our passage tells us in the second line of verse 12. He says, return to me with all your heart. Return to me with all your heart. In other words, from the low bottom of your heart, repentance has to be wholehearted. Wholehearted. In other words, he says, you've got to leave your sin behind. That's what turning from sin means. You've got to lay it at his feet, lay it down, leave it behind, turn from it, go the other direction, walk away from it, and give your heart back to God with a resolve to walk in a new obedience, with a resolve to keep going in this new direction. It's got to be from the heart. And you know it's wholehearted when your desire really is. And you know when it is and when it's not. When your desire really is, I'm not just, you know, okay, I'm sorry for that sin, but, but you know, secretly, I'm, you know, I'm probably going to do it again tomorrow. Just saying you're sorry is one thing, but saying I don't want it anymore, and you lay it down and you say I'm done with it, and you walk away, and you say, God, I had given my heart to this junk. I'm taking my heart back, and I'm giving it back to you. And you really lay it down, and you really turn. And whenever you, I mean, and you know when you're, like, genuinely sorry about something. Like, if you're in the grocery store, and you're, like, kind of in a hurry, and you kind of, like, quickly go around the corner, and you knock over some 80-year-old lady and just make her spill her groceries, and her cart goes flying, and she flies off into the end cap and knocks all the Swiss rolls over, and, right? And you're like, oh, my goodness, I am so sorry. You, you know you mean that. You're like, with all of your heart, you really didn't mean to knock that poor old lady over. You really are sorry. But you also know when you're just saying, okay, I'm sorry, to like <laughs> just be out of a situation. Oh, yeah, sorry, okay. And then you're not sorry. You know when you're sorry and when you're not. You know when you feel it and when you don't feel it. You know when you mean it and when you don't mean it. And so repentance that, that's authentic, that's real, is when you mean it. When you really are in your heart laying down that old sin and walking away from it. Now, Joel goes on to explain what repentance from the heart looks like and feels like in verse 12 and in verse 13. 
And the first thing he says is, here in verse, at the end of verse 12, is with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. In Joel's day, in Joel's context, this meant that Israel was to declare a national day of repentance and hold a repentance prayer service for the sake of the nation and the people. And you can read about that in the very next verses, verses 15, excuse me, verses 15 through 17. But what does it mean for us? God, I mean, we're not a nation. We can't call a national day of prayer. So what does it mean for us as individual Christians and as a church? It means our repentance is really from the heart, with all the heart, when we feel in our hearts grief and remorse over sin. We are truly and deeply sorry for how we have sinned against God and against other people. We actually do regret it. We really are sorry. I've used this example a long time ago. You probably don't remember, but I used it on Matt because Matt was sitting up here. And I said, Matt, if, I, if you kept punching me in the arm and kept saying, oh, I'm sorry. And I said, okay, I forgive you. And then you punched me in the arm again. And I said, and you, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I forgive you. And you keep punching me. It's like, Lord, how many times do I forgive? Seven times or 70 times seven? Because if it's 70 times seven, my arm's going to fall off. And of course, clearly he's not sorry if he just, keep, he just keeps doing it. Right? Now that doesn't mean that it's easy to walk away from sin. And it doesn't mean you never relapse. And it, never, it doesn't mean you never, ever, ever, ever again commit that sin. We're not talking about perfection. But we're talking about something you really feel in your heart. You really are sorry for how you sinned against God and against other people. And you genuinely want to change. And you want to be different. The second thing Joel says drives the point home. He says in the text in verse 13 at the end, or I'm sorry, in, um, uh, at the beginning of verse 13, he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, rending the garment was a ritual and cultural gesture in the ancient world for Israel in the... In the Middle East. This was a ritual and cultural gesture. It was a symbolic act that signified to people who saw you do this that you were in deep anguish and grief and remorse. Perfect example is in Genesis 37:34 when Jacob's sons tell him that Joseph has been killed. He hasn't really, right? He's been sold into, into Egypt. But they bring back his coat of many colors and they've slashed it up and they've put animal blood on it to make Jacob believe that he's been torn to pieces by some wild animal out in the field. And it says Jacob rent his robes because he had lost Joseph. That's what, you, that's what rending of the robes is for. To just demonstrate a gesture that shows that how deeply in anguish and grief and remorse you are. And Joel says that that outward gesture is meaningless with God unless you are truly brokenhearted over your sin. Just calling this National Day of Prayer and having this prayer service and everybody ripping their garments, that's all good and well. But if you're not ripping your, rending your heart, it just doesn't matter. It's a show and a sham. You've got to rend your heart. Now, in our context, for us, this means that walking down the aisle and praying a prayer and signing a card and raising your hand and 
praying with the preacher afterwards is meaningless unless your heart has been broken over sin, unless you're truly laying down your heart. Because too often, in my experience and yours probably, in churches that practice weekly altar calls, and I did this when I was in a church like this, is that too often it's just a, it's this little psychological thing we do, this little spiritual thing where I can come down front and act all remorseful and then go home with an excuse to be unchanged. How many times have I or you or others come forward, prayed a prayer, made a big show of it, and went home and didn't live different at all? So what we did down here was just useless. It was just rending the garments, but not the heart. That doesn't mean that altar calls are useless. Does, I mean, I got saved in an altar call, so I'm not saying they're always bad or can't be done well. I'm not condemning the whole practice. I'm just saying that if all you have is the outward show... And no heart change, it doesn't matter. What God wants is substance, not a show. He wants substance, not a show. When repentance is from the heart, we break off our dalliance with sin. And we give our heart to the Lord and we get back to loving Him and living for Him. And we do this in brokenness for our sin And when we do this in our brokenness, he doesn't leave you broken, Christian. He heals your heart, and he restores you with his forgiveness. And I'm here to tell you, when God forgives your sin, you aren't guilty of it anymore. When God forgives you of your sin, and he says, I forgive you, and he cleanses it, and he cancels it, you don't get to walk around guilty anymore. He's taken that guilt and he's taken the condemnation. If God's forgiven you, you're free. It's over. And if other people don't forgive you, it doesn't matter. Because they're not God. That doesn't mean that that relationship's not important. It doesn't mean you shouldn't work on healing that relationship and seeking forgiveness from other people that maybe you've sinned against. Of course you should. But you don't let their unforgiveness... Become God's unforgiveness. God doesn't have any unforgiveness. When you've really repented, you're not guilty anymore. Doesn't mean there's not still a mess that has to be cleaned up, but it does mean you're not guilty. And it does mean, it does mean that you don't have to stay broken. God takes your sin away and he makes you brand new. It's not just poetry. I'm a new creature in Christ. That's not just pretty poetry from the Apostle Paul. That's reality. That's indicative. That's gospel. You are new. Hallelujah. We've seen the motive of repentance. We've seen the manner of repentance. Now to close this morning, I want to press home to you one final point in our passage. I must emphasize the moment of repentance. Notice with me the opening words of our text in verse 12. Very first words, he says, Yet, even now, declares the Lord. Yet, even now. 
Oh, Christian, let those words of gospel good news ring in your ears today. To the one who is despairing today, who hears this message of wholehearted repentance and thinks, I'm not there. I wish I was, but I'm not. I don't have it in me to do it today. I want to say, you're right, but listen in spite of all your sinning and guilt and unworthiness, in spite of what an absolute mess you may have made, in spite of how awful you've been in the past and how terrible and hopeless things might seem right now, yet even now there is forgiveness, there is hope, and there is restoration for even you. For even you. And if you want to be done with all this old mess and the baggage you've been carrying around and that old, the wounds of sin that you've still been shouldering, you don't have to wait another day and you don't have to wait another minute to be healed and whole and new and pure and clean all the way down to the rock bottom layer of your being. You don't have to wait. Repent today. Repent where you sit. You don't have to come forward. You have to lift up your heart to him and say, take it. I'm yours. Save me. And you know what? God loves to answer that prayer. You don't have to wait another moment. The moment's now. And to those who might be hearing this who feel complacent, who might be thinking, oh, I've got plenty of time. Don't have to be today. Got some more sinning I need to do. St. Augustine prayed that prayer before he became St. Augustine. He said, Lord, he had a, he had a problem with um, sleeping with his girlfriends. Now, he was never married, but he liked, to, he liked to sleep with his girlfriend. And he knew he should stop. He felt the conviction. He wasn't a, he wasn't a Christian yet. And in his book, his autobiography called The Confessions, he writes down what his prayer was right before he became a Christian. And it said, my prayer was, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. I'm glad he wrote that down because he's just being honest. How many of us are like, Lord, I want you to take away the sin. Ooh, not yet. A little more I want to do with that sin. To the complacent, I want you to hear the urgency in the word now. Today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Today, if you hear his voice calling, do not harden your heart. Today, don't comfort yourself with this notion that you have all the time in the world. Now is the time to do business with the Lord. Now is the time to close with Christ. This is God's time for you. This is the moment of repentance. Yet even now. To all of us this morning, oh, let us return to the Lord with all of our hearts. Each and every one of us. Let us ask the Lord to give us such a repentant heart always. Let us cultivate the habit of walking in daily surrender to the will of God. Where we wake up every morning and we say, Have your way with me today, Lord. Have your way with me. My heart belongs to you first and always. Let's pray.
Lord, let us have eyes to see the true motive of repentance, to see you in your glory, to see you in your goodness, to see you in your grace, to see the precious promises that are blood-bought for us. You have left no good unpromised, and you've left no good unpurchased. It's all ours for the taking if we'll just exchange that old sin and lay it down in true, wholehearted repentance, seeking to walk away from it, seeking to walk in a new direction, seeking to walk in a new obedience, like a new creature on the narrow way. This is something we cannot do in ourselves and wouldn't do if left to ourselves, but we ask for this gift in prayer because it's yours to give, and we seek it with all our hearts today. We seek to learn this daily rhythm of walking in surrender to you. Help us to believe these promises and not to carry around the old guilt that you've forgiven. Help us to really believe these things and help us to find the healing that only your forgiveness can give. And we will give you so much praise, so much worship and glory for it, because you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.